Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And today we're very privileged to have Professor Harvey Kay, author of Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, The Fight for Four Freedoms, and most recently, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. And Professor Harvey Kay teaches at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay and is a historian and sociologist. So there's a lot to be said. The, the most recent book that we read for today is a, is a wonderful compendium of speeches and essays that, that trace uh, a lot of the, the political action and history over the last 10 years and take us up to some very important questions about how to be politically radical today and how we can look back on our history to think about what we should do today and why. So, uh, welcome, Professor. I've I've been looking forward to this to talking to you two guys. You know, it's it's really great reading reading the book um, because I I'm sympathetic and I think Ryan is too to the leftist version, not of American exceptionalism per se, but of not treating the United States as an exceptionally evil or or irredeemable. Uh, Place and, and so there's a lot of leftists who I think um, do a, a version of American exceptionalism, which is to make us um, exceptionally evil. When the history of, of empire and of uh, all kinds of powerful nations uh, throughout time is one where there is the violence, there is the uh, oppression, but the difference and the distinction of our founding, as contradictory as it might be in, in practice, was one of, of hope and ideals worth drawing upon as we move forward and that that leftists and uh, peoples who have been marginalized have drawn upon in their struggle for freedom, equality, and democratic self-rule. So um, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, what brought this book into being in terms of, of its theme and, and, and why uh, you look upon our history in that way. Okay, well, I'll start by mentioning something which may play into this. and It's, well, two or three things. The first one is, is that I actually began all my studies and my teaching in Latin American studies. Mm. Back in, so I trained in Latin American studies in the 70s. In the 80s, I came to the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and I was in a, a program. It's the same program, but we've changed the name. Originally, it was called Social Change and Development. And I was teaching Latin American history and politics and social studies kinds of things. So I knew fully well the story of empires, you know, from the 16th and 17th centuries the, you know, the Portuguese and the Spanish empires, the Dutch. And then, in fact, in the course of the 80s, I shifted quite dramatically because of a whole series of events into what people call British studies, because I really did become sort of, I'll put it this way, enamored. I was deeply immersed in the British Marxist historical tradition. And I mm. came to, I ended up writing a book about those British Marxists, uh, E.P. Thompson, uh, Eric Hobsbawm, Christopher Hill, Rodney Hilton, hmm. George Ray, and I actually got to know them. And uh, so in essence, I, and I already, I mean, they didn't bring me to the left by any means. In fact, in some ways, it was it was a natural movement into what they were doing, because their understanding of history was decidedly class struggle based hmm. in the sense that they, they didn't see history as, for a start, merely names, dates, and places, obviously. But neither did they see history as simply exploitation and oppression. They were actually, actually determined to, to reveal the degree to which that even in, even in defeat, the struggles that have transpired have, a, have an impact, make a difference in history. 
So, you know, they're the godfathers or the fathers of this idea of history from the bottom up, which you in this country was often called history from below. And I think and in some ways, oddly enough, my immersion in what they were doing kind of led me back to a childhood hero of mine. Um, I was 10 years old when I first encountered Thomas Paine because mm-hmm. my grandfather, I tell the story too often to probably repeat it here, but it, basically my grandfather was a trial lawyer in New York, had a group of books by and about Thomas Paine. And I discovered among those books when I was 10, a book that seemed to show that all my school teachers were wrong, that the argument was that Thomas Paine, not Thomas Jefferson, wrote the Declaration. Now, <laughs> I, I, I go through the whole thing. I'll just tell you that I, I fully appreciate the fact that it was and is not true that Paine wrote <laughs> And as I often tell people, one of the reasons I know it for a fact is that as powerful as the declaration may be, it would have been even more radical if Thomas Paine had written it. I was going to so say, it's just, not true, but should it have been true? Maybe it should have been true. <laughs> <laughs> should it have been true? That, that, and they should have let him write the Constitution, too. As <laughs> so, so, anyhow, to go, so, so there were these kinds of influences at work. But the other thing was, and, and this also plays into the not just my Thomas Paine book and also into my later, and this plays into my Four Freedoms book as well, is that the, this, the, the practice, I'm, so I came into history in the 60s, I was a high school student in the 60s, in the late 60s, early 70s. So a calm really, time, a very calm, calm period. Nothing yeah, very on. calm, you got it, right. And I can remember, I, I'll tell this honestly, I mean, I, I and we opposed the war in Vietnam, but one of the things that truly disturbed me very much about the student left of the time was that essentially sort of a kind of knee-jerk hostility to working people. Hmm. And, 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 and I, I never could quite see it in that way because of the jobs that I'd had, you know, during in summer and during the school year. And I just never saw people in the same kind of fashion. I'm not telling you I, I don't fall into elitism. We all, all us PhDs probably do at times. You, but did, I really you, was, you did just say that Thomas Paine should have written the constitution on his own. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Yeah, but he was a working man. There that's we go. That's right. That. <laughs> as long as it's a working man, that's good. Yeah. Right. So, but the th- so the thing was that I always so I, I had there was this sort of real, real sort of question in my head about how it is that we could possibly transcend this kind of this this middle class attitude that we had, or even I I came from a very decidedly lower middle class middle class family, but and, and so I, I wasn't one of the better off upper middle or upper class people, but but it really it really did bug me. And the other thing was is that. My parents were always fairly, they, they were not progressive in the, in the hardcore sense, but they were always liberal progressive. They, they always voted leaning left. They couldn't understand how people could ever vote no on a school referendum. They didn't understand how people could be hostile to labor unions, mm. all that kind of stuff. So I didn't quite see my parents or that their generation, the, the World War II, gener- the Depression, World War II generation, as somehow my enemy, as something that needed that I somehow had to overcome my parents. So all these things play into it. I have to. I, I'll tell you. So anyhow, so I my early work, which began in Latin American studies, was all about peasant struggles in in Mexico and the highlands of South America, and then I made the shift over to the British Marxist historians. And then what what happened then is that. I was fascinated. My wife is British, and we've been married for you know for forty six years now. Oh, congratulations! Married, married rather young. I, I actually did my master's degree in p- political science or international relations. Uh, Alexios, you might appreciate that. Okay, absolutely. So we, I, I like you even we more going, now. It's true. <laughs> uh, okay, we, we, so we were going back and forth between the United States and Britain to visit her family, not as often as would have been nice, but you know every couple of years. 
And it, one could not help but notice the echo between Margaret Thatcher, the Tory prime minister, and Ronald Reagan, the Republican conserv conservative Republican president. And I ended up writing an article for Socialist Register back in the mid-80s on the new right and what I called the crisis of history or the use and abuse of history, the past, by the new right and how effective they were. And one of the things that really struck me, especially because I moved into United into U.S. studies as a consequence, American studies, was how effective Ronald Reagan was in hijacking the past. Mm. Now, okay. it, wasn't exactly history. it wasn't exactly history that he was he was speaking, mm -hmm. but he but he somehow was able to grab hold of the past and portray it in decidedly, you know, sort of you know, reactionary almost in in, yeah. in terms that that and it's, but what happened was the left knee jerked it. Mm. So you know they, mm. they 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 said a you know. You know that Reagan didn't know what he was talking about. Well, he sh he knew damn well what he was talking about, and he was making every effort to to, to propagate mm, it. Mm. The other thing is that the the left was more than willing to deconstruct it, to use the postmodern term, but they weren't offering the narrative to transcend it. And when I came into historical studies, my generation was a generation that was eager to enter history in order to 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 make the existing narrative all the more progressive or radical. Mm. In other words, post-war liberal consensus narrative didn't need to be trashed. It needed to be laid hold of. And, and the fuller story, the more progressive story needed to be included. So, so I, it, it concerned me. Well, anyhow, so I did, I did the, I did a book on, actually I edited a book cause I needed to immerse myself in American studies, which I co-edited with Paul Buell. I don't know if the name registers with you, Paul and Mary Jo Buell, one of two really fine radical historians. It was called The American Radical. And the more I got into it, I ended up writing a book, for example, on Thatcher and Reagan and their use and abuse of history. And then I, so I kept writing about that use and abuse of history. And I brought out a book of my speeches and essays back in the mid 90s entitled Why Do Ruling Classes Fear History? Mm, interesting. Because what I was trying to get at is that their efforts to, to, to if you like, appropriate, to hijack the past was not because they were enamored of the past at all. No, it's that myth, it's myth making that helps helps them rule. It's for, you know, but and I assume that that in your counter myth making in drawing on history, you you think it politically useful but also a, a more accurate understanding of the history, not not simply a tool for the left politically, but actually uh, a better understanding yeah. of the history, right? No, absolutely. And and even to the point where your use of the word myth making as to what I'm You cringe. Did you cringe when I <laughs> rub, it rubs against my grain, okay. But when you're talking about I mean, Reagan, I, is that not the case in terms of, of this this well, Reagan's case for sure. Oh Reagan's right. case for sure. That's where I well, well, that's, yeah. You're right. I, I, I want to you know, I want to redeem the past. Right. And admittedly and I don't want to I don't want to ignore the tragedy. I don't want to ignore the exploitation or oppression, but I want to remind people that that first of all, the Enlightenment did matter. How's that for a start? Mm. That Fair. Thomas Paine's agreed. Sense, agreed. We're all we're all on board. Yep. Okay. So Thomas Paine's common sense said, which is the most of probably the the most Enlightenment of of sentences ever ever written. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. Mm. Okay. And in fact, that's exact. And, and and moreover, and this is the other key thing, which links to what I was saying before about the the sixties and seventies. Thomas Paine did not tell Americans anything that they didn't already know and possibly imagine. Hmm. In other words, and he was very clear about it. 
But it's moreover the case that he didn't just try to encourage Americans to declare their independence. He also said, if if independence was the only thing we accomplished, it wouldn't have been worth it. Mm-hmm. Basically, what he said is this yep. was for the making of a new kind of political order, a new kind of political universe, a new kind of government, to be blunt about it, a, a democratic republic. So when he wrote, he wrote basically not to tell Americans what they didn't know, but rather to almost hold up, sorry, I'm holding my hands up for any of you who are listening out there, <laughs> to hold up a mirror to Americans, they look at what you're already doing. Right. Now is the time to, now is the time to declare that what you're doing is the world you want to create. Because the Americans had already thrown out the British officials by the time he arrived in America. But they kept saying, we want to secure British rights for ourselves. We are British. Give us our rights. And what Paine was saying, no, 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 you're Americans. And your, your role in history, and he didn't use the word role, but your role in history is to declare human rights. No, that's okay. right. And, and you have this beautiful thread that goes throughout, which... <clears throat> whether you're talking about Lincoln or you're talking about uh, various radicals uh, during the, the New Deal period, um, that they each serve to show, I think, this this argument that the promise of our country is one that is um, inherently radical and inherently democratic in its possibility, and we need to act, and that's why there are calls to action, right, and calls to instigation, yeah. um, starting right. with 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 pain and others. Um, but you say some provocative things like social democracy is a hundred percent American today. When when you have yeah. people claiming this is a center right country, right, you want to argue that. No, actually, at our core, right, we are yes. radical. Yes, and and to just to lay out a quick narrative for everyone. Okay, well, let me f- first point out that I sometimes I like to have our students read Frederick Douglass's "What to the Slave Is the Fourth of July." I, I just yeah. taught that a few right. weeks ago, in, in fact. And what you have to tell students, you know, the, I, the question I pose to them is: Douglass a patriot? Mm. Okay, that's the question. I'm going to use that and one. Then that's I, good. I, and then I hesitate to do it, but I eventually give way because I don't want to be the hard ass. And I say, <laughs> read it all the way to the end. That's right. That's right. Because if you stop yeah. it two thirds, people miss that he actually it it, that they 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 miss that he admired the founders actually, and he had hope. But at that time, yeah. he said, "We're a young, almost like a teenager. You don't know how the teenager is going to turn out. We're we're <laughs> we're young enough that there's hope yet." Right. And there's yes, pro- there's promise right. and there's hope. But my, my question to my students is that was written right in, in what was it? Uh, 1840s, something like that. 1850, early, 1850. early, early 50s, early 1850s. Um, right. Has the teenager turned into the 20s? And, and I'm like, where are we now? How much yeah. hope is left in terms of our development? You know That's a good, right. But, you know, one of, the th- and one of the things that I tell them, which really shook me up and I've been I haven't worked it out fully in my mind, whether or not I truly want to embrace it, is that. Apparently, Douglas, you know, Douglas was originally a Garrisonian, Lloyd, William Lloyd Garrison. And Garrison was, was the leader of a movement of abolitionists who would have been more than happy, or at least in, that's what he claimed, to divide the Union because real Americans should not be associated, he would say, with that constitution that allowed for slavery. Mm-hmm. But Douglas, and Douglas originally was very much like one of the foremost figures of Garrisonian abolitionism. But then he met um, Garrett Smith, Garrett Wright. What, mm. I'm blank, I just blanked on his proper name. Sure. Anyhow, who was a major political figure, I think Free Soiler, something like that. And he taught Douglas a new way of reading the Constitution. Mm. He said, 
for the sake of our cause, don't read it in terms of, read it exactly as it's written. Don't, don't read it in terms of what was intended by any slaveholder, or for that matter, abolitionists of the day. Read it for what it says. And what it says, for a start, you know, go back to the Declaration. For a start, it says equality, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And don't let me leave that behind, even though I'll mention this constitutional thing. Yeah. And he said, look, there is no reference specifically to slavery in the Constitution. It may well allow for it, but it doesn't say it. Okay, And what it does say, by way of the preamble and later the Bill of Rights, is essentially we the people. And there's no, there is no specific exclusion, though there are distinguishes, you know, there are distinguished between those that might be three-fifths and others. But the point is, Douglas grabbed hold of it, and that's what that speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, is about. But now, let me just respond. You said this whole social democracy thing, which, which in fact, I do believe social democracy is 100% American. And I don't mind if we call it social democracy or democratic socialism, to be honest. I we, used to, on this podcast, <laughs> we favor democratic socialism, but we'll accept with uh, <laughs> we'll accept social democracy. Well, no, <laughs> no, because we, we've said, and you probably agree with this, at this point, we're, we're so far in this country to the right in actual political reality from either, that at this point, it's it's somewhat silly to get too caught up in that distinction. At some point, we can have a battle later on when we're far, far along the road that we want to be on, right? When we're far along that road, we won't worry about it because social democracy will give birth to democratic socialism. Hopefully. As we're- Hopefully. So here's the thing. If we go back to Thomas Paine for a start, okay, there's common sense. But people forget that very same author of common sense also wrote the first arguments for social democracy. They are in rights of man. Okay. He basically says, well, he's back in Britain, you know, arguing, he's trying to get a, a bridge built, but that's beside the point. And he's arguing basically for an end of, of monarchy and aristocracy in Britain. And he says, well, we can get rid of those things. Think of all the, the monies we'll now have that we can now provide a whole series of, he doesn't use the term social democratic programs, but he said, we, the government can now put itself apply itself to providing all those things that people need, you know, work, decent, decent, li- uh, decent lives. And then agrarian justice that he writes half a dozen years later is the call for social security. Nice. And if you haven't read it, if you haven't read it, go read it. Please, and and wasn't there a proposal not for universal, universal basic income, but, but uh, I guess, so maybe this is what you're discussing. No, it's, it was not universal basic right, income. Right, right, not, right. It right. was basically a call targeted to Tax the landed rich yeah, that's because right. they because the land they hold was never intended for them alone. It was intended for all to share. So he didn't want to necessarily appropriate, reappropriate, or take back the land that they didn't. But he said, well, we'll just tax them. And the monies will be used to provide what he called, you know, old age pensions or social security. It will also be used to give every young person at the age of maturity right. a grant. That's what I was okay. That's what I was thinking, right? Whatever else. And by the way, unless the Trumpsters, you know, unless the Trump administration has taken it down for as long as I can remember in at the Social Security website, when it tells the story of Social Security, it begins with Thomas Paine's agrarian justice. Uh, Okay, now here's the second one. No, I just, I just I just want to point out that we were just talking with someone who's read uh, Piketty's new book in French, and apparently, you, you'll, you'll, if you don't know this already, this will um, I think intrigue you. Uh, he proposed essentially 125,000 euros to to every 25 year old. Yeah, 
Does he give any credit to Thomas Paine? I wonder. I should. We should find out. <laughs> Maybe not. I mean, didn't when Paine went to went to France during the Revolution, they threw him in jail? Isn't that isn't that what happened? <laughs> yeah. First, first, they put him in the National Assembly. They loved him so much. Yeah. And then the Jack, then the Jacobins. No offense to Jacobin Magazine, but then the Jacobins took power, and they were and they were gonna they increased the you know the numbers of folks going to the guillotine. And what happened was the vote came up: should they execute the king or not? And Payne did not believe in capital punishment. Yeah, and he stood yeah. up at the National Assembly and said no. In fact, what he said was, send him to America to be re-educated. <laughs> <laughs> by by yeah. the way, no offense to Jacobin Magazine, which, uh, little known fact, is actually based on the black Jacobins. Yeah. Ah, no kid, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So no offense taken. And you know what? That's right. The icon is the black, right. Yeah, yep. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you. Now it all comes together in my head. Absolutely. <laughs> now this is this is this is wonderful. Um, so so well, let me just tell you. Okay, so Declaration of Independence, yes. right? Which yeah. is important all, to distinguish all, because I think we shouldn't conflate. I, very hard, I think, to critique the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, which is a, a document of political compro compromise and, cont and contestation, is something that can be critiqued. But of course, it has a built-in system for uh, amendments, and of course, the the, the right. post post Civil War amendments were a new birth of freedom, right? So, but so. Let's just make sure we distinguish those things because I you know what remind me to come back to the preamble. I have a funny little story you might appreciate. Absolutely, but but in the Declaration, I'm going to give you the, for lack of a better way of putting it, the Franklin Roosevelt rendition of the Declaration. Hell yeah! You know, in song. <laughs> Remember, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it is in a very, very important speech he gave in 1932 on the campaign trail out in San Francisco to what I presume to be a group of very prominent and wealthy men at the Commonwealth Club. He gave a speech in which he called for an economic declaration of rights, a new mm. social contract. And he, and he based it not as if the old declaration had something wrong with it. He said, look, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. People have a right to life. And what does that require? Food, clothing, shelter. Today we'd say healthcare, right? Today we'd say a whole series of things. Liberty, as he later said in 1944, when he called for an economic bill of rights, necessitous men are not free men. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And he believed Americans had come to appreciate that. He actually believed we were on the verge of creating that economic bill of rights. And of course, the pursuit of happiness should almost speak for itself. So when we think about it, from the beginning, and by the way, there are many an example of the original founders, Payne being and Payne and Jefferson probably most most effectively, actually did enact certain laws that we would today view as decidedly social democratic, like some kind of like health care for merchant seamen and others. Okay, that the government should you know should should enable them to 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 have that. So it's not it's not alien to their being this idea of social democracy. It's just that American life, slavery, excuse me, slavery. Is a, is a question aside almost on this particular issue. The point was the poverty that prevailed in this country was so limited compared, compared to the poverty that existed anywhere else in the world. They had this, you know, maybe fantastic notion that you wouldn't need the kinds of things that we now recognize as imperative. Well, right. Because, Although, yeah. I mean, you, you, uh, ha you have this, it seems to me, this trajectory of um, 
<laughs> For those we consider really the people, things are pretty great, right? And, and the question is, who yeah. gets to belong to that group of we the people? Who gets to count as that? And, and, and that seems to be the real struggle because for, for people that seem to be, and that's why with Trump and, and, and others, that the game is all about who counts, right? Who is human? Who is American? Who isn't? Sure. Um, because it well, seems, In right? some ways, it's American story in a, in a, in that, in a, mm. in a particularly a terrible moment mm. of who counts or not. We had imagined, had we not, that somehow post-60s we had tra- – yeah. Not in a fully social, cultural, or economic way, but at least in a fundamental legal and political fashion, that we had transcended that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although I wonder how many of our listeners know that women couldn't even have their own credit cards until the mid-70s without their husbands <laughs> signing off on it. I, I just think Jesus. people don't realize how recent, right, such crazy things, such crazy exclusionary oppressive things were in practice. Um, By the way, I'm not going to defend anything about that. But I do want people to know that Switzerland did not grant women the right to vote until 1971. Yes, yeah, screw Switzerland. We beat you. <laughs> American exceptionalism. Yeah, that, I mean, this, you know, this is the this is the 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 <laughs> cancer of tax evasion. That that all comes from Switzerland. You know, the the the, the I did not expect the Swiss bashing, but I'm on board. The Let's previous the previous Gabriel Zuckman book, and I'm sure the new one co-written with Emmanuel says um, uh-huh. has a lot of details about this. That like there, you know, there there are all these, you know, the Cayman Islands and so on around the world, right. but the Swiss are sort of the vector of of all that type of behavior. And yeah, maybe when. Maybe maybe Bernie and maybe you know Sanders and Warren. You know my preference is clearly Bernie Sanders, but you good know, man, allowing good man. Warren, that's right. That's the right answer. Know, allowing Warren is a, allowing she's a you know she's a progressive. I'm not going to deny that, but maybe they could come out with their plan to invade the Cayman Islands as a yes as a way. Yes, that would be the only kind of overseas invasions. We'll satisfy the reactionaries. You get your war. It's going to be a class war, but you're going to get your war. Yeah, pretty much. That would be it. I like so, it. Oh, now my little story about the preamble that I think you might you might enjoy is this. Sure. So, there was a real battle over the preamble in the Constitutional Convention, and that the question was, how would the preamble begin? Would it be "We the States" mm-hmm. or "We the People"? Now, the irony in, in many ways is that the man who wrote "We the People" and and effectively propelled it into the preamble was himself. A, a rich merchant lawyer, son of a bitch named Governor Morris. <laughs> Governor Morris, that's and, right. That's right. And I say this, and I say that because when Payne was jailed and imprisoned <laughs> in France, yeah. and the and Payne said, you, "You you shouldn't, you can't do this. I'm an American." Morris said, "I don't think he's an American. He's British." <laughs> <laughs> Probably didn't a lot of, have a lot of affection for James Wilson either then. <laughs> so so anyhow but it is odd and to think that it was this really sort of very conservative member of the founding you know cohort who wrote in we the people because he was he was himself against slavery mm, mm, right so in many ways he sort of affords us that kind of social democratic excuse the expression populist wedge even in the uh, in the preamble and so but what should we use this history for because i think it is both um a compelling argument that it's more true that the core of who we are, if our identity is not, again, this is a thing we've talked about. If you can trace the history as the history of failing to live up to the ideals, but 
but insofar as something's essence is in the form, as Plato might say, in that which doesn't change, which is the ideal, if the ideals themselves, right, are freedom, equality, uh, democratic self-rule, then it's simply a matter of how have we failed to live up to them or how well have we done in striving for them. So, um, what yes. if, right? Like, so, so, so tell us more about how we can use this history and these examples, okay. uh, today, right? What, what, what are the lessons we can yes. learn? Yeah. Okay. Did you like my little Plato riff? I'm Greek. I'm going to get in a few more. <laughs> in my earlier book, the Why Do Willing, my earlier collection of speeches and essays back in the mid '90s, I point out the degree to which Plato is the enemy. By the way, so uh, <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. Okay, yeah, wanted, uh, you, you wanted, read him. You read him as an elitist. I take it then. <laughs> well, look, he he wanted the poet. He basically poets and historians were the same folks, right? back in ancient Greece. And, and he said that, you know, basically his poets, historians, they're dangerous people. Yeah. Okay. They're yeah. the ones who are going to take down the myth that might, uh, yeah, might but he, he did it in the context of a dialogue where he told his own myths. He's, he was full of irony. I mean, you know, he's you also taken, taken, I know you, I know you political theory people. I know. How I dare you besmirch you. Plato's name. <laughs> okay. Seriously. So wait, so let me, let me just wait a minute. Hey, and we'll get to the pursuit of happiness and whether you think the founding was completely modern, because I think you want human flourishing. That is not just because if we, if we root the, the pursuit of happiness in this very modern understanding of happiness as, as mere license rather than Liberty, which is tied to the good going back to Plato, right? Then we're in trouble. Then we're on the right. Okay. So there has to be this legacy on the left of understanding the good uh, as, as not mere negative Liberty. So we'll, we'll get to okay, that. Well, let's make, let me make some, Something clear before I'm. Let, let, me, okay. let me be clear. Sorry. Chap, chapter ten in my new book, nice. okay, is titled "The Riches Class Warfare Is Winning," or "What the Fuck Happened." Nice. Yeah. Okay. It's a good title. Okay. Now here's the deal. Here's the deal. I'm going to tell you now what I think are the lessons. Okay. And, and the first here's the the, here, the first and the second lesson kind of come together, but this is the thing and. and this goes back to the, what I think your original question, like where did this come from? This whole mm. desire on my part to, to sort of reclaim a sort of left patriotism or progressive patriotism. Mm. And what it is, is this, and it goes back to the question of, are we, are we that much better thinkers than our fellow Americans? Mm. Okay. Are we, I mean, if we are, then we're really fucking up ourselves. Okay. Cause we, somehow we're, we end up talking to ourselves and not to those people. Okay. Having said, that. so here's the thing. So recognizing what Paine recognized and recognizing what Lincoln recognized and Franklin Roosevelt recognized and others is that Americans actually, I believe, carry a kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, and I don't, I'm not trying to sound like an anthropologist, Clifford Garretts or anything like that, a deep cultural memory of what it means to be an American. We grow up with, if you like, these mythologies, these languages of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, there's a sense that the American flag for most people is not doesn't they don't they don't only see it as a flag to be planted in the in the sense of conquest. They see it very much as a flag that 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 embodies or represents not embodies represents that the very ideals of freedom, equality, and democracy. Now, I believe that the task of historians and all the more, if you like, public intellectuals and politicians is to remind Americans of who they are, not to tell them who they are, mm, good, yeah. but to remind them of who they are. And now and I'll get even more clear about it. I don't blame the Republicans and conservatives for these last 45 years of class war. They're doing exactly what they're paid to do or what they have to do to defend, mm -hmm. you know, 
as as Victor Kiernan, one of the really fine British Marxist historians, who was a historian of imperialism, once told me, he said, look, the ruling class is in the driver's seat. They not only get to look forward, they've got the rear view mirror. They're not even driving. They, they have a chauffeur. What are you talking about? <laughs> Fair, not when they're in their sports cars. Okay. <laughs> okay so, so anyhow, so the point, the point is that that they know that the history that, that, that has preceded them, if we remember it, it'll be not only a story which will piss us all off for what they did to our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, it's also a story that'll actually remind us of what our grandparents, great-great-grandparents and others, did to actually bring an end to slavery, to empower women, to empower working people. I mean, there's a story there. Absolutely. I mean, it's a story that's undeniable. Okay, and our task is to is basically to, to reach into the to people's imaginations and remind them of that by not by telling them what they don't know, no, but by affording them, if you like, the stories, the the yeah. narrative yeah, yeah, to make yeah. sense of the very. I, I love that, this idea. I love this idea. So that, I, I, I love this idea that the ruling class in this country is not necessarily American. They're just like any other ruling class. What's American are those upstarts that have like fought the ruling class and have fought for the advancements we've made, right? Whether from um, Frederick, Frederick Douglass to, to MLK, right, to FDR, whether part of the government or, or from below and organizing. Um, I, I like the, the, the idea that that itself is part of the history that we should identify as, as is, distinctly yeah, American. A, you know, look, if, if you've got and you want to keep it, there are imperatives that you must pursue, period, okay? But... It's the promise of America that enables people to imagine alternatives and to feel, if you like, the radical imperative that was imbued in American life by Thomas Paine and by the Declaration and so on and so forth. Okay, so now having said that, there's another. There, so if I'm not going to blame the Republicans for doing what the Republicans and the and, and the conservative rich will necessarily do, then who do I blame? Democrats, do it, do it. <laughs> yeah. You took the words right out of my brain, okay? I mean, think about it. You know, you, you guys aren't old enough, but I, and I was coming through college and grad school and seeking a job back in the, in the early to late 70s. That was what the 70s was about. And what I couldn't figure out is what the fuck was happening to the Democrats, mm. okay? The likes of Gary Hart and Jimmy Carter, okay? Gary Hart hated the Roosevelt legacy. Gary Hart ran for Senate in... Colorado on a speech title entitled End the New Deal, basically. Okay. Jimmy Carter's own family were anti-Roosevelt Democrats, you know, and Jimmy Carter himself basically, basically turned his back and his entire administration's back when he wasn't firing them right and left on the, on the Roosevelt legacy. And yet, you know what, if you go back and you look at public opinion surveys right through the seventies in right through the eighties, Despite the political pattern, you know, the voting pattern, the fact was most Americans wanted more liberalism and more social democracy, and they did not turn their back on the civil rights question. The Democrats themselves did all of that. Okay, look, Jimmy Carter was a member of the Trilateral Commission, along with George Bush back in the early 70s. Okay, and and the Trilateral Commission issued the report published by New York University Press, no conspiracy. Of the of a crisis of democracy, and what was the crisis? There was too much democracy, period. And they actually named the culprits that they wanted to go after. You know, labor unions, poor people, women, 
uh, value-oriented intellectuals, basically humanity, humanities and social science professors and the media. They laid it all out. And, and Trilateral Commission and the Alpha Memorandum, yeah. war was declared. And why do you so, think they won that? Where so, did the Democrats? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's this theory that, because I'm, I'm really intrigued when you said that social democracy leads to democratic socialism, and I hope that it does. Um, but And of course, it's just one case study about how we went from FDR to neoliberalism and uh, kind of the, the devastation of unions and so forth. But uh, there is this, this theory that... Um, you know, capital will will just you know kind of um, regroup and and come back and and and, and you know demolish you and, and that's uh, kind of the the way it went after those gains were made they were taken away right what was given was taken away and and it's not for for no reason that the Democrats um, became captured right in the way that they were and that it's actually you know FDR that that was um, the outlier in fact. Uh, so how, how do you look at the history in terms of what it teaches us about, um, you know, because there, there is this idea, right, that, that you have to pressure those that represent you in, in, in the political parties and that they, they won't just Absolutely. do it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. By the way, I'm, just for the record, I'm hearing you a little fuzzy at this okay. point, okay? Sure, sure. Okay. Is it okay, me in just... particular? Ryan, speak as well and see. Ryan, speak. Sounding all right? I mean, I can hear you both. It was just, it's a bit scratchy. I hope your uh, oh, taping okay. isn't. Scratchy, okay. I think it's but all right. Look, and just make sure you're talking right. Now into you're the sounding microphone. better. Okay, I'll come closer yeah, to the mic. A little better. Yeah, no, now you're, okay. is that better? Okay, so, I'll just get closer. Okay, so look, the, the the worst thing to happen in the 1970s, amongst, I mean, we talk about recession and oil crisis and all that, but the tragedy was that the declaration of war on labor unions was not met by the Democratic Party recommitting itself to the powers of labor. Right. Labor on its own. Labor. Look, I mean, I, I celebrate labor unions. I belong. I've, I have belonged to a couple along the way. I still is an act, very active member of the American Federation of Teachers. But what we have to keep in mind is that whenever labor has been strong, whenever any force has been strong, it has depended on a progressive party in power. And when the Democrats and it was the Democrats who turned their back, they they sold out or they were bought out, however you want to put it. Right. And labor was, in essence, left without the defense of what once upon a time had been an effective National Labor Relations Board. Um, it was it, and maybe there should have been more cohesion and solidarity. That's the past. But one thing is clear. Social democracy in itself is not simply a social welfare. Social democracy depends upon strong and active and assertive labor unions, yeah. not simply labor unions to, to negotiate, which is important, collective bargaining agreements to secure benefits and wages. But actually, we've gone beyond that now. We need to empower workers in the workplace, everything from sitting on the boards to having rights in the workplace guaranteed by the Constitution. That, that's clear. Yeah. And, and, and which is reasons that I'm really impressed by Bernie Sanders' campaign this time around. The workplace democracy is, is a really a really effective uh, plan, I think, a really smart plan. So, and then, the, but here's it, the thing. It, I mean, Harvey, sorry, R Ryan is uh, less quick on the draw than we are, so he has to uh, let him, we have to let him get in here. Ryan, what were you going to say? Um, well, uh, just, just to make a, a slight <clears throat> digression here, um, the the we had Rich Yesselson on the podcast earlier, and he was talking. Oh, yeah, sure. He was talking about um, the the 
the fact I think you know you, if you look at history and it's like which which union activities um serve like were a success and which were not and the de- the determining factor in almost every case is whether the government is behind you and that's what I was saying yes 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 and and I you know I just I just wanted to emphasize that that point because you know you you hear on you know in some sort of some you know uh, uh parts of the left that uh you know like you should just give up on the the state that 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 demo- that the whole voting system is a farce and right and, right and forget electoral politics altogether electoralism is bad and and you know like you can see where people are coming from with that t- it's just like oh god you know and they we, think that's movement politics we voted right? for obama and we got this fucking banker shill and it's just like give up but but the reality is that like it you know it is hard to get your guy into the the driver's seat uh, but it's not impossible, you know. You do. There is the Senator Wagner of of New York, you know, or yes. the potential President Sanders, or, or you know, quite quite probably uh, uh, President Warren would be like quite similar in this in this way. Um, and and w- if you surrender the the power of the state, uh, then you know you're like you can't do politics at all. Because they'll send the army after you, and that's what happened to 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 unions in the Gilded Age and the early twentieth century. Was that you know you, you'd have these sort of stirrings of of political, you know, trying trying to mobilize people and trying to you know secure better wages and better working conditions, and then the army would come in and shoot everyone, and like yeah, good game. That was it, and and you know just well, to yeah. drill that home. Okay, well, let's first start. Not forget that yes, there were. I mean, we had we had a very bloody labor labor history in the nineteenth, and even in times in the twentieth century. Mm, but yeah. let's also not forget that throughout that in cities in the Midwest and in, and even in other parts, socialists and progressives united and took over city governments and Absolutely. made working people's lives much better. I mean, city streets were paved, sewers were were were, were laid down. Um, Power and water supply utilities were taken over by municipalities. I mean, let's not forget. They're victories. That's right. Matters. It matters. Yeah, this struck me, Harvey, when you wrote about the student who, uh, when you were teaching about all these terrible things that have been done, said basically, fuck it, I'm going to go be a business major. And you you, you realize, uh uh-oh, maybe we need to focus on the victories and, and, and the hope for change and how change happens a bit more. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm glad you. I'm glad you recall that story. I'll, I'll never forget when I was reading her paper. It was, it was like a slap in the face, you know, because I realized that even I was doing what I wasn't inclined to do. That I ended up, maybe I was angry because at the time it was probably a Reagan Bush years, mm. and I was probably just, you know, I, I don't. I'm rarely cynical about politics. I'm cynical about people mm. who I find cynicism inducing types. Um, but yeah, no, it is the case. So I think. I think we need to remind ourselves that that real progressive change has occurred. I mean, I, I don't think I, I don't know what it is about the left that it. Well, first of all, I think it's this. I, I think for the le- part of this forty-five year class war from above has also seen folks on the left, and this is academics in particular, have really done a hell of a good job in reminding everyone of the tragic history and the imperial history that America has been. I don't, and I don't want to discount any of that. 
Sure. But what's happen- what happens is, at least in public terms, is that you get Democrats in particular, who might otherwise be liberal, even progressive, they turn their back on American history because they're afraid that if they happen to mention some figure, whether it's Washington, Jefferson, or Lincoln, that somebody's going to stand up and tell them, oh, no, that guy was a slaveholder. Oh, yes, yes. But that's the same guy who, for all of his sins, also wrote that, those, those words. All men are created equal and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to whatever extent, those are the words that matter. And they're ours, not just fucking his. Yeah, okay? that's right. Yeah. The- okay. Or, but by the way, I mean, obviously, Payne is my guy. Payne was never a slaveholder, had a working, essentially a working class artisan background. He, he actually had great respect for Native Americans. His first major piece in, that he wrote before he even thought of independence was an attack on slavery in America. So I've got my hero in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, 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 but there, okay, so there, there was other things. Sorry, you go ahead, Ryan. I shouldn't. I the, shouldn't. Well, so, so this, this gets into the second, the second point that I wanted to make, which, which uh, you know, also, also a question, I suppose, which is this, the kind of current debate over something which you mentioned in your book, which is the rise of a sort of like, you know, you might call it neo-fascist right wing, um, you know, uh, the the alt right, the the uh, you know the Proud Boys, yeah. um, the, this sure. anti-democratic brown shirts, sort of semi play acting, semi not play acting, like actually beating people up, like actually people are being injured, yes. um, and you see a sort of counter argument, you know, like the natural instinct is like, these people are criminals, they are terrorists. And what you should do is sick the police on them. You should, you know, you you should say that, like, you know, according to the laws of the United States, you are not allowed to conspire to murder people. And if you do that, you should be sent to prison. And there is a counter argument that I've seen from many different vectors, which is like the FBI and all the other various law enforcement apparatus, you know, agencies of the United States are irredeemably racist and, and, and sexist and, and whatever they're, they're, they're part of the machinery of empire and dominance. And look, the FBI assassinated Fred Hampton. So like there's, there's reason for that, but I'm not, so, so there, it's they're absolutely not coming from from nowhere with this you know like like i mean even just in 2016 the fbi was trying to get trump elected and yet there is that you know you look at history and you, you think it was like when when has justice been uh advanced the cause of 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 like you know egalitarian uh moral flourishing uh succeeded in this country it's the civil war reconstruction the civil rights movement like th- those are your sort of three big uh, 19, uh, sorry 1930 the roosevelt administration years yes right them too sorry meant to mention that as well but but so like all of that involved massive federal coercion um and 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 perhaps especially you know and this has kind of been been sort of rediscovered in the last like maybe decade or so the reconstruction era a uh, guy who a guy who is uh uh been sort of lost to history Amos T Ackerman the attorney general under um 
uh, Ulysses, S., President Ulysses S. Grant for for like a like a couple of years, the man who broke the KKK, and he broke it by just send like the habeas corpus was suspended, and he's <laughs> and he and he uh, prosecuted thousands of people. You know, he had this you know this this federal. Um, and uh, like alternative justice system that that he sort of pushed into all these southern ca- states and counties because local counties wouldn't do it. They yeah. wouldn't convict anybody for being terrorists because they were afraid of 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 retaliation from the KKK. Sure. And you know, so you can you can point to your assassination of Fred Hampton or COINTELPRO or MK Ultra and all these other <laughs> fucking horrifying disasters, but like. It seems to me like there's really no way around like like the the only choice is like where that federal force that that government power is going to go. You can't say yeah. that that we should just like dismantle all agencies of law enforcement right. and sure. say that like It seems parallel to the story that Harvey was talking about. Either Reagan tells the story of who this country is or or the radicals do and either the the reactionaries have the power of the state and use it to their ends or we do. Yeah. Well, let me, let me let me give you a let me give you let me go back, connect what you've been saying by going back to Alexios's question about lessons. Okay, and and th- this is something that I think I I say over and over again in the book, but I'll, I have a feeling people aren't quite I don't think they're quite grasping just how pointed I am on this. Okay, <laughs> that's and what we're came, here for. That's what we're here for. This this came, this came to me how anchored I am on this. How's that? Ah, that a okay. baby. <laughs> okay, and this, this is the thing, and this came to me only like in the last number of years. Before that, it was sort of swimming around in my head, but I only realized it's this. This is going to sound very Pollyannish, but I mean it. But I mean it seriously. Mm-hmm. Think about if you there. Okay, so there's this great quote. Actually, you know what? This is great quote. I got to oh, yeah. Take no, your time. Gotta, no, yeah. This is great quote. No, it's not in front of me here. I'm going to paraphrase it. No, okay? you can take. You want to look it up? There's, there's no problem. We can edit it out. No front. It's fine. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I do want to look it look up. Look it up. Look on, it. I, I had a feeling you wanted to get get the quote. Yeah. Yeah. This is this because the quote is true and false, and I, but the quote led me to think about the truth in it. Here we go. I, I, yeah. Good. So here's the quote. This is from Rexford Tugwell, who was part of FDR's Brains Trust. Oh yeah. Also, great name. Great name, right? <laughs> also, also a New Dealer. Assistant, assistant is assistant secretary of agriculture, and after Roosevelt's death, many years later, he wrote a couple of books about Roosevelt. One of which was titled "The Democratic Roosevelt," written in 1957. Listen to this quote, which at first, you know, it sounds a bit sort of. Well, you'll hear it. He says, "We are a lucky people. We have had leaders when the national life was at stake. If it had not been for Washington, we might not have become a nation." If it had not been for Lincoln, we might have been split in two. If it had not been for this later Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt, we might have succumbed, we might have succumbed to a dictatorship. Now, I don't need to give you the rest because it's just saying why we have to pay attention mm, to Roosevelt. Mm, mm. Now, I have no idea about luck, okay? There's no, we're not a lucky people. Maybe we are, but <laughs> luck is luck is. There's no variable called luck. Well, okay? Machiavelli says that that um, you know Lady Fortuna favors the bold. If that might be relevant, well, that could be. And by the way, you you also know that it's quite possible Machiavelli wrote the Prince to let everybody know how to how to beware the Prince. Okay, indeed. So, okay, so here's the thing. 
we are a lucky people. And he mentions Washington, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. And I thought, at first I thought, yeah, we are lucky people. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then you think about Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. And here, and you, you do realize the significance of their leadership. But here's the other thing. When you look closely, what enabled Washington to be the effective leader? Well, in part, Thomas Paine's pamphlet. Washington himself didn't even come out in favor of, of turning the rebellion into a revolution until his own soldiers were reading Common Sense. That's the first time he ever even thought about, you know, pronouncing the word independence. Moreover, when his, he and his troops arrived up in New England in uh, 1775, and they saw that New England militia had people of color, African-Americans serving in those units, his first instinct was probably, well, we can't have this. But in fact, he didn't move to, to, to send them away until Congress sent some order. You can't have black troops. And then I'm not even sure he ever actually followed through, okay, just for the record. The more important thing is, is, that, is that Washington was propelled in many ways from below by his own troops. That's first, okay? And that's how the revolution was made, by men and women, diverse American men and women, saying, now is the time not just for independence, which we do want, but to create a democratic republic. Let's go to Lincoln. Lincoln hated slavery. Admittedly, Lincoln was prepared to, to had subscribed to the idea of Henry Clay for decades that we should have colonization. They should take African-Americans, liber liberate African-Americans and send them to Africa because whites and blacks cannot live, live, live together. So the story goes. But it's also the case that he was he could not sign the Emancipation Proclamation, which he might have imagined doing earlier, until African slaves in the, from the South, African-American slaves, were leaving their plantations in the tens and even possibly hundreds of thousands, racing to the Union lines in favor of, in some way, joining the cause against the Confederacy. And then Lincoln does. And of course, I don't know if you realize, a quarter of a million African-Americans ended up serving, many of them former slaves, in the Union Army. So once again, it's, it's this, this, this dynamic, this propulsion from below. But here's the deal. In the face of a mortal crisis in the 1770s, Americans somehow found it in themselves to do the radical thing. In the 1860s, okay, a mortal crisis. The only way to sustain the Union was when Americans pushed themselves to, to call, along with the slaves who were self-emancipating, for an end to slavery. We did the radical thing. Go to the 1930s, the depths of the Depression. What enabled it? Franklin Roosevelt himself had already learned a good deal about labor unions. I can go through the whole story. I don't need to. But it's the fact that in the 1930s, it's not only the plans and the projects that he launched in the New Deal. It's also the fact that he truly, from the outset, empowered working people to organize. It's not just 1935, the National Labor Relations Act. It's 1933, the National Industrial Recovery Act. Over and over again, once again, it's this radical propulsion afforded by working people, whether they're free or slave, that enables Americans to transform themselves and the nation in a radical fashion and thus transcend the crisis. When mortal crisis confronts us, there's something in there, and I, I associate that with the cultural memory and the promise that, that both Paine and Jefferson articulated that ends up enabling Americans with the right leadership a leadership pushed further than they would otherwise have gone to bring about the radical change. That's the, to me, that's what makes, by the way, 
And I'm, I would argue, and I'd be happy to be corrected, that I would argue that's actually what has made America exceptional. It's that in the face of mortal crises, we've somehow enabled, empowered ourselves to transcend the crisis by making America radical again. Thus the subtitle. Good title. Great title. No. No, no, that's great. No, so we, we have this history of exceptional leadership that's pushed from the bottom up. The people, right? The power of the people, right. power to the people, has in combination with exceptional leaders. And they're both important. The left often forgets about the importance of leaders, I think. Um, in times of extreme crisis, to make the radical changes, right? To Again, to be radical, to grasp things by the root, to, to bring us back to the emancipatory promise of the country. And I think that is a very hopeful thing. Um, and now we are in that kind we, of crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, and I'm not referring to Trump alone. He's he's like the cherry no, no, no. on he's top. He's a symptom of 45 years of class war on the meaning of America. Right, a uh, d- disgusting um, cherry that is rotten. And um... <laughs> no, no. So yeah. uh, let's get in a minute, I think, to more questions sure. of what this crisis looks like to you and what it calls for. I'm a little bit interested because there's a lot of hope to be had, but at the same time, we had hope in Obama and we're disappointed. And so I think the prudential wisdom to really choose the leadership and understand precisely how to take advantage of crisis, uh, we blew an opportunity. There was a great crisis in 2008 that we blew with Obama, right? Uh, so right. we don't... We, we, don't should have, we should have been better prepared and yeah. organized to make him To do- push him, Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so we want to not, you know, repeat that mistake. Don't wait for the crisis, they say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but just real brief digression, because uh, Liza Featherstone and Ryan got into it. Uh, they disagreed over whether FDR or Lincoln was our greatest president. And you seem to love both of them. So I'm so curious what you think on that, on that little – I just want to digress into that for a moment. Okay. Well, I can, how about if I cop out and say Lincoln was the greatest president of the 19th century? <laughs> Just like a true politician. Well done. Well done. You've learned. No, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> You'll enjoy this. Let me tell you something. In 19, I think it was 1931, Roosevelt said to a friend who was a historian, a, a, you know, a De- capital D Democratic Party historian named Claude Bowers, who he later named, I think it was Claude Bowers, who he actually named as ambassador, maybe to Chile and then maybe to Spain. I mean, this, this guy. And he said to him, because Jefferson was already a Democrat, but what Roosevelt did is Roosevelt took Jefferson and made him even made him in historical memory a l- more progressive than, than people had remembered him, mm-hmm. other than at the Southerners. So here's the thing. Ro- <laughs> Roosevelt said to Bowers, I think we ought to I think we ought to lay claim to Lincoln. The Republicans don't seem to want to have anything to do with him. <laughs> and I, I you know, so I, yeah. I'm willing to take them both. I, you, I, that's the way I look Fair at enough. it. Fair enough. No, it's it's a silly little digression. But so what about the lessons for today? What what about how do we not have an a great cocktail party or dinner party conversation. Exactly, exactly. We're having fun here, but also super, yeah. super important that we face this crisis properly. How do we not replicate Obama. And what I'm concerned with is, and I don't think we need to dive too much into Warren versus Bernie, but I see there are people that are very concerned that maybe Warren could be yeah. another Obama, right? Yeah, there, there is. And there's reason for concern. But look, in order not to look, everyone should know, I've already said it, I've solidly support Bernie Sanders. I didn't even realize somebody showed me on Wikipedia, I'm listed as one of the main endorsers of the Sanders campaign. I'm happy to be that. Okay. Right. No doubt. 
But, but this is the thing, whether it's Sanders ultimately or Warren, I believe the left is missing out on a really major opportunity to create what in the 30s was called a popular front. Today, we might call it a united front. I think it's really the case that we've got to overcome these, these, these distinctions because we are in a crisis and Trump is not the sole problem. It's, the, it's literally the devastation that's, that, that people are experiencing. And I say that coming from, originally from New York, but I've lived in Wisconsin all these years. And there is no question that when, that when Wisconsinites voted for Trump, they did it to punch the Democratic, capital D, capital D, Democratic establishment in the nose, believing how bad could things get, you might say. Okay. So I believe that fighting liberals, for lack of a better term, progressives, Radicals, democratic socialists really do need to find a way to rally themselves and create a kind of united front. My preference would be Bernie, but maybe during the primary campaigns, we can't get them all to do that. There's this new book by this guy, Robert Kuttner, okay, about yeah. what's at stake. Well, I can tell you, and I don't mind saying this. I, I thought, well, this is great. So I, I bought the book. I hadn't read it yet. And then I saw him interviewed on The Hill, that, you know, the online uh, television uh, operation by Crystal Ball. And somebody and she asked him, so is there a candidate in the Democratic Party who you believe really represents these progressive? And he said, yes, Elizabeth Warren. I put the book aside. OK, right. I put the book aside. Right. In fact, I gave it to one of my students. I'm not going to. This is <laughs> unbelievable. Okay? Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to vote for Elizabeth Warren if she wins the nomination unreservedly many of my friends on the left would say unreservedly yeah this yeah. It, she yeah right it's her best chance yeah yep. okay but i could tell you anybody who believes that what is at stake is the future of the nation anyone who believes in the imperative of empowering working people yeah. anybody who believes in the imperative of empowering working people in all of their diversity i would say should support bernie sanders and i think the left right now should be mobilized in a united front, arguing, as I've said, making a public case of the fact that in moments of crisis such as, keep in mind, every one of those crises before, whether it was the revolution, the civil war, the Great Depression, World War II, whichever crisis you talk about, they are each different than the other. That's right. Utterly different. And we are now in a crisis which some people don't even recognize as a crisis because the rich, look, rich people and upper middle class people, they're doing fine. But if people aren't aren't aware of the fact that the the, the, the what do they call it, the longevity, the life life expectancy in the United States, especially for working mm -hmm. people, has gone mm -hmm. down, yep. they don't realize that the opioid crisis is is devastating large parts of the of the American heartland. If they don't grasp all those things, mm -hmm. then basically stay home, don't vote. Okay, I mean this is the moment to unite behind a very progressive, indeed social democratic, democratic socialist candidate. And be prepared to back him up and push him maybe even further than he would otherwise go. But at the same time, fucking vote for the senators who are going to back him up as That's well. Right. Okay? Yeah. Also, everyone do vote. Go vote. 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 Vote for the left. No. And, and so, what? you know, I think we all agree I mean, on this, right, Ryan? We oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ber you know, Ber Bernie, I mean, he had a heart attack, but, you know, he's still kicking. So as long as he's alive, yeah, Dick I'm Cheney, for Dick him. Cheney had has like had five heart attacks since he was thirty. New, and, new. And, and he's got he gets so, a new heart yeah. every ten years. But no, every no. heart. Every they'll all tell you. You know the story of uh, if it's a success, if everything goes successful, they come out with even greater. You're strength. better than you were before. Yeah. 
well, we had so Rich Yesselson uh, and this. I'm trying to. I want to swing some Warren supporters. We have a, probably a, a few of them listening. Uh, you know, uh, uh, as you say, we would vote for Warren if we had to. But uh, what do you say to the arguments? Like Rich Yesselson made the argument that um, Bernie is the tree shaker and Warren is the jelly maker. And, uh, there's right. There's a, there's a role, there's a role for activists, but, but in terms of actually exercising power, you want somebody who knows all the levers of government that can actually, uh, make things, uh, happen once in office. What do you, what do you say to that? Well, well let me put, let, well, first I'd ask, I said, what do you mean she knows the levers of government? He's assuming Harvard, he's assuming he's a Harvard professor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, tell, tell me what she knows about making government work as a Harvard professor. Give me a break here. Okay. And by the way, my daughter went to Harvard and Harvard Law School. She likes Elizabeth Warren. I believe Lenny, it's called she, Harvard. Harvard, yes, yes. right. Okay, <laughs> well, that's for smart, okay? Um, the other thing is, you know, let's put it this way. Generally speaking, when I hear people tell me about Warren, and I, I don't even like bad-mouthing Warren. No, I, no, I, no. I, I like we're not bad-mouthing. We're making – it's, it's this is the narcissism of small differences. We're trying to, to show why – all good thinking people should support the, the future president, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> right. Well, here's the thing. Why am I always hearing those kind of arguments from people who live on the coast? <laughs> I, 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 I mean, what else can I say? That is the case. Look, yes. I mean, my friend, my dear friend, Michael Kazin and I, you know, we, we, we differ about a hell of a lot of stuff. And I'm convinced quite often that, you know, people who've lived their entire lives on the coast just I don't think they get it. And I'm not telling you we're better in the Midwest. What I'm telling you is, is that what cost the Democrats in 2016 was Pennsylvania, Ohio, yeah. Michigan, and Wisconsin. Right. Okay. New York's going to go where it goes. California's going to go. Where, I mean, we know what the coasts are going to do. Yeah. But I can tell you, Bernie can win here. Yeah. I, I don't know anyone who can prove to me right now that Warren can win in Michigan and Wisconsin. And I'll just note that, that that is an argument for Bernie being the better candidate to win, but not necessarily, to, to Rich's point, the better person to effectuate change once in office, which I also think uh, Bernie will be better at. But Okay, well, let me tell you one more thing. Yeah. Let me tell you one other thing. In spite of the fact that Franklin Roosevelt had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy in World War I, in spite of the fact he was governor of New York for two terms, when the governors used to serve two-year terms, those who met him during his campaign and early on thought he was a lightweight, <laughs> okay, a lightweight. Interesting. And all I, and look, one thing I can tell you is try to be the mayor of Burlington, Vermont. Mm, interesting. And pull it and pull it off. Okay. Tell us why. To, yeah. Why, why is that hard? Yeah. Tell us. Well, it's a university town with a, with a, a you know, with a rural surround it's a town that was really in decline. I remember Burlington in decline. And when I returned some years later and I thought, wow, this is great. And it can't be, it can't only be Ben and Jerry's ice cream is what I figured. Mm. Okay. Though Ben and Jerry's ice cream is wonderful. Okay. <laughs> but, 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 and then also consider this once, a, you know, this is funny. I somehow remember that back in the early seventies, there was, there was an argument in of all places, Playboy magazine that said progressive progressive should move to to Vermont. It's we could we could take over the state. Okay. And next thing I knew was Bernie was winning the, the mayor the mayoral race of Burlington. And all the years ensuing, I thought, geez, I hope I get to vote for a guy like that someday. Mm. And it and, and Bernie won the primary here. Now all I'm telling you is don't underestimate 
what this man is about. Mm. And, and I do not believe for a moment that Bernie Sanders is, a, is any more or less capable of governing as mm. president and leading the charge than Elizabeth Warren. I, 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 see, I see no reason to believe that Warren knows how to make the jelly. I, I just, right. it's nothing, okay? I, I just think, don't see yeah. it. I think that's right. You know, you you he for for all of his uh his reputation as being this this l- loony radical Bernie uh Isn't savvy. It, well, he you know, he back when he was in the house and his early career in the Senate, they called him the Amendment King. You know, he was really good at getting you know, literal bipartisan compromises on like little, like little stuff, you know, because recognizing that his politics was a non-starter in the in the 1990s but finding little areas of agreement where he could get things done and uh, just just as he had done uh in Burlington and 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 that continues to this day um with that the 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 vote on Yemen which really is quite extraordinary getting a bipartisan yes. vote through the through the Senate and the House on on you know trying to stop this like fucking nightmare you know vetoed by Trump of course but like I'm getting Republicans to vote against a war like like he's not it takes a, political savvy he, it, yeah there's no it's a false dichotomy to say there's a trade-off between principle and 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 you know know-how in terms of po- politicking and plus he as executive chief executive wouldn't be the one ironing out every single detail of every policy you you, you hire the people that do that and and he would be just as capable as uh, as hiring the wonks to do that as anyone else right yeah you know by the way i want to say rich rich yelson is a smart guy oh, we we, we yeah. love rich he's great <laughs> And that metaphor of his about you know the tree shaker and the jelly maker, that that's delicious. I mean, it's, <laughs> that's a great great phrase. Delicious. That, but I, I but seriously speaking, I, I don't see any evidence for the for the argument that Bernie's not as qualified, capable, or anything else as Elizabeth right. Warren. I look, I mean, I, I think a guy who's who literally rose in politics through from mayor to congressman to senator over all these years of right wing politics is a significant figure whereas look i mean i i go if i, I don't know if anyone ever bothered to read her book back in was it 2016 or whatever it was elizabeth mm-hmm. warren read mm-hmm. wait she was and she was as lightweight as you can be i mean i i, I don't want to get into the details because I, I really would like to be able to vote for her without feeling dumb okay it, it is the case that it's just not there in those are in that early stuff so you know and how, how have you felt comparing the, the policy proposals that have come out and, and understanding, of course, that, you know, there's the politics of actually getting things passed. But uh, what have you learned from from Bernie and Warren's campaigns in terms of what the proposals themselves tell you about the vision and the. Uh, well, I can tell you this on that. I can tell you in 2016, I was, you know, I was more than happy to vote for Bernie. But since I, I believe at least one of the two of you has read my new book. Uh, we both read yeah, it. Did you both get a chance? Of course. No, no, no. I, no, I mean, only because I don't know who's got the copy at any given time is what I meant. <laughs> so I don't know how we had time to read it. But you will notice that I was, I criticized Bernie in that, in that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I said that, you know, I couldn't understand why Bernie as much as, as Hillary turned his back on history. Right. Except on one occasion or two. So I had my reservations about Bernie, but this campaign, I think, is, is, is even a smarter campaign 
than the 2016. And the tragedy of 2016 is there really was a Clinton machine. That's right. That's yeah. I mean, that's because because if they had just run, okay, Bernie would have won. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. machine was all predetermined. It was what do they call it overdetermination in the in the Marxist you know, Marxist mm-hmm. structure. Absolutely. Stuff. So yeah, and they, well, and uh, they they uh, I mean, I think it was on the one hand, you know, the 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 Clinton machine had completely cleared the decks for her. But on the other, you know, Bernie was running, at least at the start, a total protest candidacy. He didn't yeah. think that he was had a chance. And he was totally flabbergasted when he was, like, winning primaries. Like, oh, Jesus, like, Mississippi, what the <laughs> fuck? What do I do with Mississippi? And, you know, like, like it's just a, yeah. such a difficult yeah. position to be in. Yeah, and, um, and I think if, if he had a few more months, he would have caught up and beat her, actually. Yeah. Look at this. Look at this. The most astounding thing is not just that he was winning. He was winning the vote under the age of 50. <laughs> right. That's right. I mean, he, you know, and here's this guy. Look, a, a, a Jewish man in his 70s who grew up in Brooklyn, right, who's now a senator from Vermont, and he's winning. He's Pepsi. 18... He, he's the taste of a new generation. <laughs> it's true. Seriously. <laughs> 18 to 45 year olds. Yeah, that's right. And the, the enthusiasm, how is that possible? Is you, one has to ask. Why? Because he tapped into that yeah. sensibility that a younger generation. I mean, maybe we academics and teachers haven't done the shit job we thought we had, that maybe there was this sensibility among these young Americans. Mm. They responded to somebody who actually offered a significant progressive vision. Now, if you now let me say one thing else, okay? So let's take first. Let's put Bernie and Warren over here on the left, and we've got all these other yo-yos who are running for president. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Bunch of yo-yos. They want to get out of the way, okay? Right. I mean, I mean, come on. Harris doesn't stand a chance, okay? Is Klobuchar still in there? I don't even Th- remember. Thank God. Thank God they don't stand a chance. I mean, they're terrible. No, exactly. But what? But they're getting in the way. Is what it, although mm-hmm. some people say no, no, they're, they're distracting people from the what could be a real battle between Bernie and and, and Elizabeth poor, Warren. Poor Biden might not know who he is before this is over, but he's the big obstacle. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, I forgot he was running. I know. Well, he's he did he did too. He doesn't know who he is. He's yeah, yeah. The only uh, thing I ever liked about Biden, I will tell you what I really liked about Biden. Do you know the story about how he was plagiarizing Neil Kinnock, the British Labour leader, in yep. his ninety-two? <laughs> I at least liked him because he, Neil Kinnock was a Welsh Labour Labour Party leader, and I liked the Welsh Labour Party. and And I thought, wow, at least he knows how to choose his plagiarism properly. <laughs> now, yeah. because your wife is British, are you good at accents? Can you do a Welsh accent? I I could have my wife come up with a Welsh accent. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would be great. Uh, well, I, my I, mother, my, yeah, I spent time in Wales with my in laws, and I it's it's. And my father-in-law was Scottish. My mother-in-law was Welsh. Lovely, great, great Celtic combination. Lovely, lovely. Are we going to get rid of Biden? What is 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 he a real threat? What's the deal? What do you think? Well, he's a threat, but I can't believe he's still going to be there. Right. In I six just, months, it's just hard to believe. Just I hard mean, to believe. you well from your mouth to, to God's ear. The, the yes. You, maybe to finish up here, the the you look at the 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 poll average trends. Bernie's been flat for the last six months. 
Warren's been up She's for rising. the last six months. That's right. And and Biden has been down. Yeah. You know, he's uh, he down and up and down and up. I mean, he started at like forty five percent when he first announced, but now he's and his fundraising's down. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, a si- it's a sign of the big. By, by, by the way, by the way, don't forget. As long as you're going to badmouth my candidate Sanders, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> my candidate that, too. That, if you go, if you go look at the, st- if you go, go look at state polls. Mm. These generic national polls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, do, he's doing well. Up, up in some places, and let's not forget that Bernie is outraised. He's yeah. outraising everyone. Is that people? But not because some uh, because more billionaires are, are no. donating. No, he has the lowest per per like yeah the the lowest amount per uh what, what do you call it the average dollar amount per donation. Yeah, well, the, and this is my point that that with respect to Biden, Biden he's trending down. Warren's about to pass him up in the overall polls, and his fundraising is I think less than half of Bernie's or Warren's for the last for the quarter. last quarter. And like half or like 40% of his money has come from people who are tapped out. That's right. In terms of donations. And so with respect to Biden, I, I'm getting, an, I'm, I'm more and more confident that he's done. He's just, he seems incapable of, of uh, responding okay. yeah. to, to like, you know, he's just, he's just uh, on the way out, it seems. And, and then it will be Bernie versus know, Warren. Yeah. That that's where it seems like yeah. it will end up. Well, Spider son is not doing him any good. Oh man, I hate it when my coked up fail son is just ruining <laughs> all my political opportunities. Uh, I lose more presidential elections that way. <laughs> <laughs> but we we've got we've uh, I feel like we're we're about a run out of time here. I'm sure we but, have. We must have been yeah. out for like an hour and whatever. We appreciate yeah. you. Any any final thoughts or calls to action? Anything you want to uh, get in that we yeah, haven't? Yeah, you want to uh, plug? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. Look, um, I hope people do take a look at this book. Take hold of our history. Make America radical again. It comes out officially on October 25th, but it's already there on all the you know the bookstore websites. Right. We'll link to it. You know, and um, and it it's a book that in many ways you know is sort of like the blood, sweat, and tears of these last nine years, you know, 10 years, watching Obama rise to the presidency and then completely turn into what he, to this mm-hmm. utter disappointment, mm-hmm. um, to watch uh, Democrats over and over again, fail to appreciate the crisis we're in. And, you know, I mean, it's time that we do actually take hold of our history. It, if only to overcome what the Democrats have done to us these last four decades and reclaim the party Unite behind the most progressive candidate we can find, which I believe is Sanders right now and Warren, if 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 it turns out to be her. And and then beyond that, I, I really do mean this. Don't people shouldn't just watch. They yeah. shouldn't just yeah. watch. That's right. Okay, that's what happened with Obama. Look, he raised my students' spirits and expectations. I was in shock that somebody of my students were so excited. Mm. And I said, well, if, if if he's smart, the first thing he's gonna do is he's gonna create a Civilian Conservation Corps, or National Youth mm, Administration, mm. harness energies, and he didn't do shit. Didn't do anything. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have a little hope of? I know that was supposed to be the last thought, but the squad. How do you feel about the squad? I feel like there's young blood in Congress that is leftier than most uh, new entrants. Well, how can you not, look, I mean, how, how can you not want to just take the squad and, and give them a hug? Right. Of, of Don't you just want right? to bottle I mean, them up and just like inject it into your veins and just like give everyone yeah, that? Exactly. I mean, Pelosi, how the hell she could oh my try God. to slap them down 
That's outrageous. These yes. people, I mean, I, I could listen, you know, Jesus. I mean, look, AOC is my, is my young hero, you might say. I mean, <laughs> you know, admittedly, she did it in Queens and in New York. But, yeah. you know, I think there are people out here in the Midwest who could do similar kinds Absolutely. of things. Absolutely. From your, from your mouth to God's ear. And uh, thank you, Professor Harvey K., for joining us and, and giving us a wonderful uh, experience of learning how our history can inspire us to become radical again, because we need to make America radical again. So thank you so much okay. for joining us. Well, like I say, it's more power to you guys. It's a joy talking to the two of you. It's been not only important in terms of getting the message out, it's been a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so Glad much. You. Hope to have you on again before yeah. long. And thanks for listening, thanks. everybody. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going. 